Whether you're a polyamateur or polyambitious, polyambiguous or polyam, I really hold your head high. Let your freaky flag fly, cause your polyamory should be uncensored. Hi there, and welcome to Polyamory Uncensored, a podcast where we, your hosts, Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams, interview a poly person each episode, and we try to answer the five points of journalism. Who, what, when, where, and why, as it pertains to our poly lives. Hello, and welcome to episode 90, where we are talking with Frankie. Stay tuned as we talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, and the just plain complicated truths of our poly lives. So hi, Frankie. Welcome. Um, Who are you? Um, I'm Frankie. My pronouns are they, them. Um, I am local here to Milwaukee, and I am a solo polyamorous person living with multiple disabilities. What does polyamory, and in particular solo polyamory, since that is how you identify, uh, mean to you? Well, um, I uh, tend to be romantically attracted to more than one person at a time. Um, I feel like for me and my life structure, it has made sense for the majority of my adult life to want to maintain more than one relationship. And so I've explored all kinds of different structures of polyamory. I've explored just about every, you know, polyam identity there is. And I have really settled into um, sort of being my own partner first as a solo polyam person and making sure that, you know, my own needs are, are being met first. And then, you know, acquiring partners uh, in relationships that are mutually beneficial. What drew you to polyamory? What drew me to polyamory? I think the idea of monogamy just really never struck me. Um, I think a lot of us have you know, talked about this in previous episodes where, you know, monogamy is a very um, societally structured like encouraged? Encouraged, yeah. It's a very anticipated sort of uh, mainstream thing. I just, uh, compulsory is the word, mm, mm-hmm. compulsory thing. Just like I think, you know, heterosexuality is can be compulsory. I think that monogamy is something that we are driven to because of capitalism, because of the way that we are, have life structured. And so I think that deconstructing everything that society has taught us about how relationships should look and reconstructing relationships to look, to look the way that we want them to look, the way that we need them to to look to be the most beneficial for everyone involved has always been something that I have been drawn to even before I, you know, kind of had words for it. I think that that absolutely comes from being somebody who's had a a disability their entire life. I've had to kind of, you know, consistently reassess what my connections to people look like and, and how those connections are being supported. And so I think polyamory just kind of became second nature for me once I had the words for that. And once I you know, started meeting other people with similar experiences. What, if anything, do you find difficult about polyamory? What do I find difficult about polyamory? Um, I think, honestly, the biggest thing, and it's, you know, this is, I think, every relationship's communication I think it it comes down to communication. And when there is uh, that many moving parts, uh, I think that that wires get crossed super easily. And I think that um, the the hardest thing is learning to rely on people to communicate effectively and then uh, training yourself, teaching yourself to communicate as effectively as needed um, to support the, the needs and expectations of everyone involved. I think that uh, particularly as someone with a disability, I have had the most most conflict, most struggle with learning to navigate um, my relationships to metamors um, that I am not connected to. Um, I think that making sure that everyone's needs are being met and making sure that that everyone's boundaries are not being crossed but are being respected. Um, I think that that can be the hardest thing when there is sort of a level of privacy that also wants to be maintained, a little bit of uh, stigma in there when it comes to disability-related needs. And so I think trusting that someone that I'm not inherently in a relationship with is also going to respect and understand my needs as an individual um, and also trusting and anticipating that they they know that I'm going to uh, respect their needs as an individual, I think has been a um, 
one of the biggest learning experiences, one of the biggest, yeah, struggles, roadblocks, if you will, in, in polyamory. And when did you know you were polyamorous? Oh, gosh, probably in my early 20s, I would say. Um, I think my first polyamorous um, relationship was when I was 22 or 23. So about, about six years now. When, if ever, did you feel different from other people? I feel different. Probably in high school. I, you know, as I, I was exploring my queer identity, I was raised in the deep South, y'all. I was raised in, in North Carolina in a very small town. And as soon as I started started exploring my queer identity, that went, that went along with being attracted to multiple people at a time. And that that kind of just was was something I always knew. I thought that that was something that everyone experienced and that people would just, you know, eventually just pick one person out of a bunch. And the more people I talked to, the more I, you know, uh, you know, got involved in the Milwaukee scene and started meeting more people and observing other, I think, queer relationships in particular, the more I realized, oh, you know, this is not, <laughs> this is, this is a particular um, type of, of romantic attraction and kind of connected all of the dots that had been there for quite some time. So, you know, since I think the, the earliest I can remember having trouble choosing over a couple of people was in the, the eighth grade. So, so yeah, it was a long time coming on, on connecting all of those dots. Where do you feel you are in your poly journey? Oh, that's a good question. Where do I think I am? Um, well, if I'm being honest, I think I am really settling into, um, what it means to have my own needs met first. And I think that polyamory kind of gives us this beautiful option to say, you know, no, none of these one particular relationship structures work for me. And I need to be my own partner first and, and put my own needs first so that I can be a better partner to my partners and so that my partners can be better partners to me. I actually ended a, a relationship to a nesting partner um, about a year ago and moved back into living alone uh, with me and my cat. And so I am right sort of smack dab and getting, getting resettled as someone who's meeting their own needs first and exploring relationships as something that could be um, an added benefit to my life instead of, you know, sort of the, the main theme. Is there anywhere that you hope to go on your poly journey or do you have any poly goals? That's a good question too. I mean, I think this year um, I've been talking to my partners a lot about how I have goals of getting more comfortable with more casual encounters with people um, and sort of exploring. Um, I, I tend to identify as more demisexual. And so um, I tend to get more involved with people that I have romantic feelings towards. And I, I really want to explore having more casual encounters, um, getting more into the kink scene um, and sort of sort of sort of exploring relationships that are more fixated on on that side of things is really, I would be interested in doing that. I think one of the things that I wanted to talk about was kind of how that is affected by being a person with a disability and, and you know, some of the things that I've uh, seen other people encounter uh, in trying to have more casual encounters and, and things that I, uh, things I've experienced, things that I'm trying to avoid experiencing. I think that there are a lot of a lot of things that I have observed other people exploring in their polyam journeys that uh, have not really been made accessible to people with disabilities or things that people don't think about that then sort of trip me up. But it's uh, it's something that I'm definitely getting sort of that deep dive into this year um, is how can I explore a wider variety of connections and interactions with people while also having my needs met and making sure that I'm I'm safe and healthy, right? And why do you think you are poly? Why do I think I am poly? Um, I think that humans are not naturally monogamous beings. Um, I think that it's just kind of my inherent identity. I think it is it is as second nature to me as my sexuality, as my gender identity. I think that it is just kind of ingrained into who I am as a person and how I am meant to connect with others. And why did you agree to be interviewed? I've always considered myself to be an advocate in the community. Um, I have always been involved in um, disability rights and disability advocacy, and, you know, LGBT uh, advocacy. I really want to get more comfortable with um, how I represent myself in the, the polyamorous community and the queer community. Um, and so I had an experience recently with a friend that kind of prompted me to, to reach out to Lindsay and say, oh, yeah, this is this is something that I think that a lot of people don't don't talk about enough. Well, great. Thank you. Yeah. 
So yeah, so we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey there, interested in more polyamory uncensored content? You're in luck. We just started a blog, polyamoryuncensored.wordpress.com. We're going to be showcasing stuff like episode breakdowns, polyamory and ethical non-monogamy related book reviews, and guest posts from authors like you. If you'd like to be a guest author, contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com, and you might be able to see your work up on our website. Again, that's polyamoryuncensored.wordpress.com, and we're going to have some fun, new, poly-related content for you. Thanks. See you there. And we're back talking with Frankie today, and we are talking about interabled relationships. If you could give the audience members a rundown, like, what does that mean? That is a good question. An interabled relationship would be a relationship between two people of, of different levels of ability. So what do I mean by that? Um, in my case, that is typically looks like me as a wheelchair user dating somebody who is ambulatory and walks. Um, but that could be between anyone of, of any different identifiable disability. And you had mentioned like certain etiquette that I'm sure you've probably dealt with, or you know, people who have dealt with it, uh, different things that are, what's the word that's not etiquette? I don't know. Like, really? Well, yeah, sure. Yeah, that are rude. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> the opposite of etiquette. So what kind of things have you dealt with and, and what kind of um, etiquette, like advice would you give to folks about interable dating? Oh, gosh. Okay. So you all interviewed um, someone uh, a little while back. And I, you know, I think that she had a a sort of a great explanation for, you know, some of the things in in terms of, um, you know, just not asking like uh, people ask really ignorant questions sometimes. And, and don't get me wrong, I love sort of being a a learning opportunity. I recognize that I might be somebody's, you know, uh, first experience with somebody with a disability who, you know, is out in public and willing to have a conversation. And I'm, you know, still a whole person. And so if you're going to ask me why I'm in a wheelchair before you ask me my name or pronouns or, you know, whatever it may be, it, it, it's a little jarring. Um, and that that tends to be an experience I have in a lot of social situations. I, I think in, in poly meetup spaces, too, you know, it, it just kind of catches people off guard sometimes to see somebody in a, in a chair in public. But in particular to, to dating, I get a lot of really blunt questions about what I can and cannot do, whether that's, um, you know, out in public or whether that's, you know, asking what I can do in the bedroom. And really, it, it surprises me. You'd think that people would know that the etiquette is, is the same as as somebody you're trying to court. Otherwise, you know, we'll talk about those things when we get to it. Right. Um, I was talking to a friend recently who actually has inspired me to, to reach out to you, who was talking about etiquette when it comes to specifically polyamorous relationships and how she had an experience of um, inviting a man to, to come back to her place and to spend the night. Um, and this particular friend uh, utilizes care services, has caregivers who come in, who, who don't spend the night at her place, but, you know, come in in the morning, help her get out of bed, do breakfast, get dressed, all of those things. Um, and in this particular scenario, she and her date had agreed that she could cancel her morning caregiver um, because he would be there to, you know, help her get dressed and and have breakfast and and whatnot. And what ended up happening was this date's girlfriend called him in the middle of the night and told him that she needed him to come home for whatever reason. Um, it didn't seem like it was uh, from the, from my, the, what the story that was told to me, it doesn't seem like this was any kind of, you know, medical crisis, anything of that nature. Um, seems like it was a primary relationship scenario where she called him. He decided he needed to leave, ended up leaving my friend with no caregiver until, you know, 11 AM the next morning when she could get a friend to come by and, unlock her apartment and come in and and get her out of bed. And this is just the most blatant example I can think of, of, you know, blatant disregard for someone's access needs. Um, Just the most ignorant, ignorant layout of, of taking care of someone or, or what what, ignorant layout of what someone's needs might be in this scenario. Right. Um, Going back on your word, like, it sounds like right. they had actually specifically negotiated this, you know, mm-hmm. negotiate might not be exactly the right word, but this was an explicit plan and right. it's rude no matter who you are or what your abilities are to dump the middle of a plan on a date, right, but it's right. particularly 
got it's got a more particular negative impact if you have a physical need for that person and some element of assistance that you they have agreed to provide. Right. You go on a date with somebody with a disability, you're agreeing to meet their access needs as as they've stated and discussed them. Right. You can't you can't meet a need that is assumed, um, just like in any relationship. If I don't vocalize something as a as a need, that's, you know, not on the table. But if if someone makes their need known and you agree to that, you, you're committed to following through. And I think when it comes to polyamory and negotiating things, these things, when there are people involved who are not necessarily emotionally, romantically um, you know, whatever it may be connected to the person with access needs, there's got to be some level of just c- commitment that comes along with common decency. And I am surprised by some of the stories I have heard of people's uh, lack of empathy, lack of understanding, um, lack of agreeability to just compromise, you know, People have all kinds of insecurities and and concerns when it comes to relationships and all kinds of different boundaries that they might have with, you know, primary relationships. But really, you're still agreeing to meet the needs of a a third person, uh, a third party and make sure that they are taken care of and respected. Yeah, absolutely. And the idea of leaving someone stuck in bed Mm -hmm. is just like unbelievably thoughtless. Right. I I was appalled. I was appalled, you know, not just because this is a friend that I have like a lot of respect for, but because I, I have had, I've had not fun situations. I've had um, situations that I found embarrassing where people, you know, kind of left in the middle of connections because it wasn't, you know, my body wasn't what they expected it would be. Um, Right. But it's a whole other thing involving a a third person who was not even involved in those, those initial negotiations to, to blatantly disregard um, someone's access needs over whatever your expectations for your relationship, primary relationship are. And I can kind of imagine like, okay, you've got, you know, somebody has a crisis. It doesn't necessarily look like a crisis to everybody, but it looks like a crisis to somebody. So, you know, when you're trying to figure out how can I meet both of these people's needs, like, there, there may be an opportunity for negotiation. I'll be home in two hours. I have two more hours. Would you like me to help you get dressed now, even though it's earlier than you expected? Or I'm going to go, but I'm going to come back at 830, you know, whatever. Like you could yeah. theoretically come up with a solution that while it may not perfectly meet everybody's needs, at least adequately meets everyone's needs, but it sounds like this was just straight up couples privilege stomping on somebody else's access needs. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, You know, we talk about couples privilege a lot and how that, you know, affects other people who who get involved um, in the relationship, but this it's, it's a whole other level of trusting someone literally with your, your life. And in some cases, when it comes to access needs, um, in this scenario, I, I would have even appreciated if the you know the person had said, you know, hey, I'll, I'm going to stay until uh, you have confirmed you have somebody else who's going to who can come through and do this. Or, you know, I'll call, I'll call you in, in a couple hours and see, see if you're OK, let you know, see if I need to come back. But not even that is mind blowing. Mind yeah. blowing. Yeah, I was wondering. Yeah, super fucking rude. Yeah, uh, I was wondering uh, what, you know, other than accessibility issues when it comes to like actually going out on dates and maybe dating more often when you're polyamorous. I was wondering how things differ being poly than, say, being monogamous, because oftentimes a lot of our problems are the same, right? Monogamous dating and poly dating often are very similar. But I did not think about that angle of like, oh, you could just be fucked over, left in the lurch because of couples privilege. And mm-hmm. and that sucks when you're able-bodied too, but it's just like, uh, holy shit, this is a totally different level. Are there any other struggles I would say that, that make polyamorous dating different? Would you say? Um, well, uh, I would, I would like to, to sort of highlight that like 
on top of like typical access needs. And, you know, I, I never anticipate that anybody else is having, is going to have an accessible house. I always Mm -hmm. anticipate that I'm going to be doing the majority of hosting, but when there's a third party involved, when you've got people who are more introverts or, you know, prefer, you know, um, I'm, I'm dating somebody right now who has a dog and therefore needs to, you know, be home every three or four hours to let the dog out. Those, that's just something that, you know, I'll even forget that that is a, a logistic that needs to go into to planning for, for interior connections is, um, you know, how much time you're going to spend in, in different locations and what that mean, means for other people having, you know, whatever their, their access needs are met. Um, typically for me, I'm, I'm worried about having access to a restroom. I'm like, if I can go to the restroom, we're good. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, sometimes when there's extra people involved, it's kind of a, a chaotic scenario of, of, you know, okay, who's who's going to be, you know, hosting the most sleepovers, who's going to be, um, you know, handling dinner, uh, things like that. Um, and I think recently, um, because I have multiple disabilities, there are other things that I'm thinking about now in terms of um, my memory loss. So I suffer from memory loss. And so involving other people in, in planning those logistics around, you know, can I be places where I can take photos and video and document things? Um, that has been a whole other factor to add into what it looks like for me to be in an interabled polyamorous scenario. There are a lot of people who are not out. There are a lot of people who don't want things documented or who aren't comfortable being certain places, you know, and, you know, or repeating certain conversations about things. And this is just something that I'm learning to navigate that I think people need to be more aware of in terms of um, someone's access needs might not be immediate and obvious. And it might seem like something is not a big deal, like being able to take pictures or or record something, um, but ends up being a really big deal for me in in terms of how I am able to sustain a connection to someone. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you mentioned earlier was uh, some of the ways that people are incredibly rude on sort of the initial approach conversation. Um, And I would like to circle back to that because I think even though it's a little bit 101, I want to make sure that we aren't stepping over that for folks in our audience who may not have much experience with being around people who have different kinds of abilities and access needs. So you talked about, you know, how you don't like it, obviously, when people first are like, why are you in a wheelchair or what happened to you before? Like, hi, I'm so-and-so. What's your name? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Um, But could you talk a little bit more about some of the sort of basics of, you know, what is, what's a good way to just start a conversation that's not going to be off-putting and obnoxious? Right. Well, I mean, first of all, it's just never a good idea to just ask somebody what's wrong. In any scenario, unless somebody is crying in a corner somewhere, it's probably not a good idea to ask somebody what's wrong. Um, nothing's, I always say nothing's wrong with me. I mean, okay, there's, there's, there's some things that are questionable about me, but nothing's wrong. This is just the way that I exist. This is just the way I move through the world. Um, yeah, getting to know somebody first before you inquire about things. There are absolutely ways to approach somebody when and inquire about access, immediate access needs without being invasive. It's hi, you know, you know, my, my name is so-and-so nice to meet you. Um, I noticed you're in a chair. Is there anything I can do to, to, you know, help you move through the environment? I just want to let you know that the, the accessible restroom is over here if you need anything, you know, or, Hey, I want to let you know, I've never met somebody with uh, that. I think I've never met somebody with your disability before. I would, you know, love to, you know, get to know you. And, you know, later on, if you're comfortable, you know, I might, might have some, some questions for you. There are perfectly okay ways to approach and acknowledge sort of the, the elephant in the room without making it a pity situation or without putting sort of the spotlight on me medicalizing my disability. I think that's the, the sort of key is not medicalizing or um, uh, tragedy storying somebody's disability versus seeing them as a person first mm-hmm. um, and then just connecting that to how they they move through the world. I have always just really appreciated, again, people letting me know what access needs are ahead of time in terms of accessibility, um, whether there's stairs, whether there's going to be an accessible bathroom, whether there's going to be just bar height uh, tables or low top tables um, if we're meeting in public, you know, if we are going to go to somebody's house. Are there people who are willing to help carry me and or my wheelchair up the stairs? 
is there going to be parking? You know, those things. I think when it comes down to to more of those those one-on-one connections, as we, we get more into conversation with people, once we've gotten through sort of the icebreakers, if we're really talking about, uh, you know, sustaining long-term connection, I am perfectly comfortable getting into those conversations of what my specific access needs look like with partners. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people don't have experience or exposure to uh, people with disabilities as sexual beings. And so I think that a lot of those conversations end up being, um, you know, sort of one-on-one, like, okay, you know, this is what I need in particular. It might not be what somebody else needs, Um, might look completely different from what you've experienced with, you know, somebody else with a disability in the past, if you have experience, but, you know, Asking simply, you know, kind of what can I do to, to, you know, make you more comfortable or what's going to make this, you know, more fun for you. Um, Those are are perfectly acceptable, gentle ways of asking what someone's access needs are without asking, you know, how do how do you have sex? Well, how do you go to the bathroom? How do you how do you date? How do you you know, whatever it may be? Because I think that is what it it tends to be the most jarring and rude to me is how do you do this? Instead of asking, okay, instead of assuming, okay, I know you can do this thing, I, but, you know, let me know, you know, whatever the logistics are. Yeah, that is, that is the, I think the top experience I have had is, is people just being overtly blunt about it instead of, you know, waiting for me to, you know, let you know what I need and whatever the scenario may be. Well, and when you think about it, it you would, it, it's weird to even try to imagine how you would ask an able-bodied apparently able-bodied person, like, how do you date? Like, it's a question that doesn't make any sense when you think about it. Like, we don't all date the same way. (laughs) I like to go to movies. How do you date? I mean, you know, (laughs) um, know, I prefer something where we can, you know, do an activity and then talk about it afterwards. I mean, like, these or, questions or asking someone how they have sex, that's going to be a different answer. Every person, no matter what, anyways. Right. So I'm it's like, kind of interesting. Right. How I'm do like, you have sex? Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, how do, how do I, have I don't sex? feel like I know you well enough to answer that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would never ask an able-bodied person how they have sex because everybody's going to give me a different position or preference or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, and if they don't decide that it's incredibly rude of you to have asked, right. <laughs> like, uh, right. I'm and sorry, like, who are you again? <laughs> yeah. Unless you're planning on taking me to your bedroom, you know, right. That's right. when you have that conversation. And then that's a different conversation of like, right. How do right. you like to have sex? Yes. Yeah. Right. Like, because we have intention. I have only <laughs> one way and it must be exactly this way. And if you cannot accommodate my precise exact need with no variation, I'm going to go home to my robot. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Something that came up in my mind, just like while you were talking about like the kind of spaces that you um, can go to or prefer to go to for dates. Um, like, do you have any go to places that you like to go to on dates or, or are types of places that you like to go to on dates or types of dates that you like to go on because, you know, they're going to be accessible to you? That's a really good question. Um, I tend to love coffee shops. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them are accessible. Um, I'd say 95% of the time, there's one coffee shop I have encountered in the pandemic where they've closed their accessible and their ent- accessible entrance is locked because they have their one entry, one exit policy. Oh no. Um, I already complained to the manager and they were like, we're, we'll see what we can do. Um, but I tend to love coffee shops just because they're accessible. I know that every collectivo is going to have a huge bathroom that I can fit in. No problem. It's also tends to be a more sober environment. So I can, you know, hear people and not have to worry about people moving around. Um, I, I am not, uh, you know, hundred percent sober as a person, but I, I have recognized as a wheelchair user, as somebody who's shorter than people that the drunker people get, the, the less they tend to look down. Oh, <laughs> um, no, yeah. The amount of drinks I've had spilled on me, knocked into me, you know, when I'm just sitting at a table, uh, yeah. you know, at a pub, trying to trying to talk with somebody has been frustrating. So coffee shops are kind of a go to I really like in the summer, I really like going to to parks and the lake and, and festivals and things like that. I think that the pandemic has definitely changed how I've done first date scenarios. I'm much more likely to, you know, want to FaceTime somebody before meeting up in public. But then when I do, yeah, it tends to be a coffee shop thing or um, bars. There's a couple little pubs over on the east side that I really enjoy. County Clare is actually really accessible. They have 
Um, nice little ramp out, out the back. The Nick restaurant is accessible. I, funny enough, a place that I used to frequent um, was the River West Public House uh, before it shut down. And that place is not accessible at all. Um, but I used to get people to carry me in there just because I knew oh, people there. Nice, yeah. um, and so I was like, okay, if I'm going to take somebody to an environment that's going to be extra safe, where I know the bartenders, I know, you know, most of the regulars there, it's going to be public house. Interesting. So, yeah. So, yeah. Cause I was thinking, do they have a side? Yeah. They, they, they are not accessible and they're steep stairs. Like, damn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. I love so, the Nick, but their bathroom is a long way away. It is. It is. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it works out, you know, it's yeah. a nice little lounge area though. And it's, it's darker in there. It tends, tends to be less overstimulating. I'm a little bit hard of hearing. And so as much as I love, um, I was just telling y'all before we started that I went to a rave last night, as much as I love loud music and the lights and everything in terms of dates, that is, that is not the the go-to environment. I'm much more content uh, going to get coffee or, you know, sucking it up and agreeing we're not going to murder each other and then coming back to, to somebody's house to hang out and, you know, watch a movie. So mm-hmm. <laughs> agree. We're not going to murder each other. Like that. <laughs> Just make a little that is an important boundary. <laughs> right. Yeah. I would like to think that most people have this agreement, but I am always like, look, y'all, I'm really bad at defending myself. Don't make this more difficult than it needs to be. That is fair. Yeah. Something you had mentioned in your or, um, message to me when when we were talking about this episode was access to needs for like sex and kink and how they could be different. Um, what what did you want to speak to about that? Gosh, um, yeah, uh, I think that there's a, a very broad range. And again, as somebody who also works uh, with people with disabilities, so I work as a, a life coach and a peer support advocate for other people with disabilities. So that goes everything from like the basics of like, how to get a job as somebody with a disability to how to date, you know, I am still learning about all kinds of things that I have never considered for people who have what could be considered higher access needs in the bedroom than I have. But in terms of uh, polyamory and kink and and exploring different types of, of connections, really understanding how someone's disability affects their uh, sensory experience um, is a it makes a world of difference, just an absolute world of difference. I have no feeling from the knees down. I also have hip dysplasia. And so my hips don't really stay in place. And so there are certain positions and certain positioning tools that other people might find really comfortable that, but for me end up, you know, bending me in all kinds of ways that end up being super painful. Um, And so finding ways to sort of modify um, whether that's using specific assistive uh, bedroom assistive technology, as we would call it, like thigh straps, as opposed to um, waist harnesses, whether it's that or just learning to take more frequent breaks and doing check-ins um, or, you know, using more fluctuating sensory experiences with kink. That has been a, sort of a learning learning process for me and, and something that uh, I think other people really should, should learn to be more aware of, just getting a lot more comfortable um, with having those conversations. I think something that I'm getting more comfortable talking about that um, I would love to reduce stigma about is people with disabilities who experience um, different types of incontinence and how that affects things in the bedroom and um, getting more comfortable with uh extended hygiene practices and, you know, investing in more, you know, durable, durable bedroom toys, you know, sheets, things like that to make the experience more comfortable um, and fun and sexy while also acknowledging that, you know, people have bodies. That's just so, it's so important. It's something that I really wish that I had. I wish I had somebody to look up to when I was, you know, exploring my sexuality originally who destigmatized it, who made it a lot more who, who helped me be more comfortable talking about these things with partners. I think, yeah, again, cir- circling back. So when we're talking about polyamory, when it comes to um, having access needs in the bedroom, that might be different from someone's, you know, metamorphs, really talking about what someone might be comfortable sharing or not sharing. I'm perfectly content if my partners want to talk about, you know, to their partners about, you know, the sex we're having or, you know, the kink dynamic that we have. But, you know, if I had a bad night last night, we had to, you know, sort of switch things up or, you know, stop or something, you know, embarrassing happened. Like, I want that to, you know, be be between us, right? Just like I think anybody else would. In the same vein, not making someone's, how, how they experience their body, not spotlighting that as, as gross or weird or abnormal, 
versus something that at least 25% of the population ends up dealing with at some point in their lives. It's important just normalizing, normalizing that bodies are different. Yeah, I'm exploring more in terms of access needs with more than one person involved and what that looks like. Um, <laughs> I, I would love to have more experience and then come back with more notes and, and tell you what I've learned about, you know, place, place scenarios with more than one person and more than, well, more than two people involved. But yeah, I think access needs, access needs are, are a spectrum just like everything else. And for me, they've increased a little bit in the last few years, especially with memory loss things. I, I prefer to have some extra forms of documentation that I think that could be considered kinky or controversial in other scenarios in terms of photos, videos, things that are not inherently for me to view as, as pornography versus sentimentality, right? And these are things that I would have never considered. I can't imagine that other people have thought about these things either. Knowing that somebody's connection to being present when they experience um, any kind of memory loss, mental illness, whatever it may be, um, could be really important. And in talking about what you're comfortable around, around somebody documenting somebody's experience could be really, really important. That's kind of a, I have discovered to be sort of a make or break intimacy thing for me now, how willing a partner is or how comfortable a partner is with documenting things um, and taking notes and making, making legitimate concrete memories that I can refer to for when I have sort of these memory lapses where, you know, weeks at a time of information will kind of just disappear from my brain. And that makes it really hard to, to sustain connection otherwise. That makes sense. Oh, gosh, um, I have a, a lot of friends who identify as deaf or hard of hearing, um, and I'm learning all kinds of things about uh, integrating hand signals into kink and, and bedroom activities um, and sort of more nonverbal communication. We talk a lot about, you know, safe words and and uh, using code and things like this. And I think I think that people are are learning to navigate this in a whole different way in terms of paying attention to your partner and kind of what they're doing if they've not got a, a verbal connection there. Um, so yeah, the access needs are, are all across the board. It is, it is a whole spectrum. Um, I think people really should get more comfortable with just having those conversations up front. What are you comfortable with? Um, what's going to make this an enjoyable experience for you? What What am I willing on willing to compromise on so that someone else's basic needs are met versus, you know, just a preference for me and a particularly, again, when it comes to metamors, making sure that you are, if you are, if your partner is involved with somebody else with a disability, you also have a responsibility of communicating what your expectations are going to be around that when that person might have extra access needs, you know, if you need your partner to come home to you that same night, cool, then y'all need to have a conversation about how you're going to make sure that that other person's needs are being met and so they don't feel secondary uh, which is another thing if we're talking about access needs versus um, hierarchy mm -hmm. and disability, right? Prioritizing somebody's access needs versus acknowledging that you, you know, have them as a secondary partner. Those might look like, you know, conflicting experiences, but it is, it is what it is when you're committing to meeting somebody's needs and seeing them as your equal, even though they, they have additional support needs in that scenario. And there are a lot of toys or like positioning aids. I know just as somebody who works at a sex toy store that we now carry that were specifically developed for folks who are either like, like the, the brand liberator, they make wedges and things. And they initially created those for folks with like hip replacements, like older folks or people with disabilities. And, and they're, and then it kind of caught on with everyone, everyone in the world that was like, Oh, I could use this to fuck my partner with like or on or above you know whatever and oh, this uh, might be more comfortable for yeah. you know me too yeah exactly mm -hmm. right like this works um mm -hmm. and so they're so they're much more accessible to anyone to, to to get but then um but then even just like different tools to use sex toys and be able to hold them i know i uh, Joan Price is an amazing educator for folks over like 67 years old and and she's in her late 70s and um she talks about kind of like um adjusting toys or like using a Hitachi, but with a different item to hold on to it or keep it in place and kind of um, 
the term I love is per- pervertibles, like making mm-hmm. something into a perverted, perverted. item. Yeah. yeah um, to like help. And uh, yeah. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of resources out there. I don't know if you know any of them. And I know there's like a book at the tool shed, I think, I think written by Joan Price, who is a great, I'm going to write her down as someone to link, but yeah, there are, there are a lot of resources out there for folks who want to kind of like either DIY or buy things out there that are made specifically for folks that have, have more needs. Well, and like one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking about some of the more extended hygiene needs that some people may have, like Pads are really useful mm-hmm. for lots of different people in lots of different contexts, um, and they're widely available. And they're, you know, like uh, my girlfriend and I go through them quite a bit, <laughs> <laughs> right? For our, for and various uses, exactly, yes, for sure, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. But they clearly have many different potential functions, and mm-hmm. it's not a big deal. Like mm-hmm. they're just there. You know, so I think try, like you said, normalizing these things and noting that, you know, they can be of value in this context of, you know, being in a relationship with a person who may have extended hygiene needs, but they may be useful in plenty of other contexts too. It's across the board, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Just like, yeah. Just like learning sign language so that you can communicate with your partner also works when you're in the loud club with your friends and you want to communicate across the way. It's the same, it's that same transfer of skill and and support aid. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think normalizing that and acknowledging that there's, there's more than one reason to, to utilize these things and more than one reason to sort of expand your idea of accessibility. Yeah. I, uh, that has, um, the, the larger vibrator ones that, that have a good grip on them. Um, when I was working, my, my previous career was as an assistive technology specialist, and um, we were looking into how they are now 3D printing a lot of assistive technology uh, things. And, and one of the things people were looking at was different grips, different handles that you could 3D print and then clamp onto whatever it may be, you know, whether that's mm-hmm. a, a vibrator wand, whatever it may be. Um, and yeah, it's it's really cool that we're we're starting to see more more of these products make it into sort of the mainstream scene. I do wish, however, that more things were were advertised as for people with disabilities versus oh, this is just this cool gadget that happens to you know put your hips higher. I I understand it that it's so that it's marketed to more people. And yet sometimes I don't even put two and two together that something is, is something that I could utilize right, right. <laughs> until I see another disabled person talk about it. Um, like uh, like the, the thigh strap, like the, the thigh harness, because I don't have hip flexion. You know, I never considered, oh, okay, I have some, I have some leg movement. This is, is definitely an option I could use. There's all kinds of things. Well, there are like slings that you can put over the door. That yeah, there are things that you could kind of like um, get into to have sex. That of course they just have you know like oftentimes a conventionally attractive white heterosexual couple modeling them. But yeah, absolutely. Like I wish there was more diversity. Full stop. When it comes to models in on on sex toys, um, on their marketing materials, and on their boxes. It's getting a little bit better, but absolutely like folks with disabilities. Well, and often, you know, not not everything is visible, right? Of course, like even just saying that, right? It's it's not um, gonna, uh, you're not always gonna be able to know for sure, but it would be really interesting to see someone who was using a sling over a a, a door, you know, and who who was like an amputee or something like that. Like, Mm -hmm. and it would probably be super, that makes the most sense. It makes a lot of sense. Right. Or, um, I mean, even getting to if we're if we're um, you know really going to talk about accessibility and, and kink and things like that, and we talk about polyamory, um, even having additional support people present for positioning and things like this, I particularly have seen this. For me, I have seen this represented by my friends who are in interable relationships that are relationships between two people with different disabilities. Um, but talking about what it looks like to involve another person just for support needs, right? In play scenarios, I think that we, you know, people talk about this in, the, in a fantasy way a lot. Just what does it look like to, to ask another person for help, right? You know, have that friend who's, who's available. There are all kinds of, I think, low, I want to say low investment 
there are all kinds of low investment options for accessibility that don't look like spending, you know, 150 bucks on, you know, a fancy toy, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's a matter of, you know, just modifying something, you know, yeah, seeing somebody else do that and then ha- having that modeled for you and then doing sort of a, a trial and error thing. Um, that's what I like. To, I like to look up people on Instagram who are are pushing sort of the boundaries of, you know, kink and photography and then saying, oh, yes, I want to I want to try that. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, sometimes it's it's impressive how object permanence works that way too. How it's like, oh yeah, I didn't know that this was available until this was presented to me. Yeah, to see other people that look like me, um, they look like you know just different bodies um, on packaging, and also seeing more people just in the regular kink scene talk about um, talk about different access needs would be really really cool. I just um, thought of a. Um a photography and kink thing that I don't want to lose track of before we get back to this, which is um, I've seen like people have a setup where it's like a, like a three part bar and a mounted camera on an automatic timer. So -hmm. like every five seconds, there's just Mm -hmm. a picture happening and you don't Mm -hmm. have to do anything. You just have to get the camera aimed where you want it. And you know, that seems like that would be a very, easy way to kind of make accessible kink photography. Yes. That's yes. Also for real time, like mirrors, adding extra mirrors in your bedroom. Y'all I have goals of having a bedroom mirror, uh, like on my ceiling. That would be just the coolest thing to me. Um, yeah. Setting things up like that again, it's super simple solutions that, that could be involved. I, I was, uh, looking at some stuff on Etsy the other day. And saw somebody, I wish I could remember the name of the shop off the top of my head, but she was making rope that has extra loop handles on the end. So if say you have poor grip or you can't open your hand necessarily, if you can get your hands through the loops, you can then pull that rope over somebody or, you know, cross it and, you know, make a tie, uh, make a knot there. Um, just really simple additions that, that could make a, you know, a world of difference in terms of accessibility. Yeah. Again, I have, I have goals of exploring more uh, group scenarios and kind of what accessibility looks like in group scenarios, but I imagine it would get easier because the more hands you have available to, to support the better. Right. That seems logical. <laughs> right. Something that you had mentioned to me was boundaries and expectations when it comes to like a potential caregiver role, like someone feeling as if they're falling into that or, or actually being a caregiver for a partner how do folks navigate that or how have you navigated it? <laughs> um, this is a really good question. For me, I have learned to make my caregiving needs kinky. Um, <laughs> I, I identify as a switch, um, but as a, as a zaddy dom, it is really, I don't want to say easy to have my needs met easier. It's more fun to ask to have my needs met by somebody who is like eager and willing to do so. And so instead of making it sort of an infantilizing or a, a lack of independence or, or power thing, um, sort of putting it sort of into that power play of I'm enjoying instructing someone on what I need in order to be taken care of. And they're enjoying meeting that need, right? I have also experienced it in the opposite direction of having someone want to take care of me, um, of course, having that that conversation around my boundaries, about being infantilized, um, around how I feel about age play for me personally, things like that. But I've just made it just made it kinky. Um, for other people, it's a matter of you know, do you do you need to also balance having actual caregivers come through? I'm I'm actually in the the process too of have of hiring a caregiver to have somebody who just comes through a couple hours a week to help me with some basic needs that I don't want to have cut into my time with my partners. So that, that is a thing of, you know, whether you're, you're getting uh, outside support, but really it's a conversation of, you know, what, what needs do you have? Um, what is your time commitment to your partner or partners look like? And it's just, it's an, it's a negotiation like everything else, but it's a more explicit holistic look at not only are we functioning as a couple, not only is this our quality time, but this is kind of a, a basic needs thing. Um, and so for some people that's, you know, really enjoying spending time, you know, just, doing chores together and having some support with the laundry, the dishes, you know, whatever it may be for other people. That's, I want to say, you know, planning specific time that their partner is coming over and taking care of things for them where it's not a date. They know that they're there to just 
you know, do a task and then they plan their dates separately. Right. Um, I've seen this work in, in all kinds of different ways with, with different friends of mine, but yeah, I'd say that it comes down to a lot of communication and, and setting those boundaries and expectations early about what it means to be taken care of and what it means to take care of someone, because I think that that looks different for a lot of people too. I think that especially in a cisgender heteronormative patriarchal society that there are certain people in the community who anticipate a certain caregiver role and anticipate taking on that caregiver role in a way that at least for me personally comes off really condescending really gendered really yeah i want to say societally expected versus something i'm consenting to and really deconstructing what it means to offer support and be a be a support provider right makes a world of difference because uh it's not a it's not a matter of whether you are equal partners it's just a matter of having different access needs and so saying yeah this is a caregiving role that i am or am not comfortable taking on and and here's why saves a lot of saves a lot of time later on it ends up that's that's how you don't end up <laughs> waiting in bed for your friend to come you know break into your apartment to help you out because somebody had to leave right and i'm not saying that she did anything wrong in this scenario but it, it's a having those explicit conversations of you know if he had said, you know, no, I'm not going to be comfortable arguing with my girlfriend if I do need to stay all night. She might have, you know, reconsidered, right? If he had said, hey, you know, her, you know, veto power overpowers your need to get out of bed. That would have been a, you know, a specific conversation, right? Or I'm going to keep my um, caregiver appointment and we're just going to have to be done. And, you know, you have to be ready to go by whatever time. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Exactly. I love the yeah, idea I of think- making it kinky, though. I, I, I feel like I've even and I'm sure people in the community have probably thought this, too. Right. Like I should date a service bottom to help me out around the house. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right. How right. convenient. <laughs> right. And currently like work schedules and like life does not currently allow for for it to be a logical situation for to have a full time 24 seven kink relationship with someone that's also i i feel like is sort of exhausting and for for me as a demisexual person takes away from the fact that i want like romantic i want time where i'm not worried about telling somebody what to do or (laughs) you know thinking that you know i just need them there you know for their for their height and their legs right but yeah finding a way to have everyone's needs play into having everyone's needs met, it's brilliant, has really made me a lot more comfortable, I think, with it versus previously. I guess it is important to note that I I guess I would call it a privilege, that I had a privilege of, of growing up with my disability and being surrounded by being in a community where I had the opportunity of, of meeting a lot of other people with disabilities. I, I did um, adaptive sports. And so I, I come from a community of people that teaches people with disabilities to be super hyper-independent, to sort of over, overcome and achieve, right? Sort of the, um, what we call inspiration porn side of things. Um, you know, it's, it's great, don't get me wrong, but the, when people are independent and powerful and, and strong, and it's very okay to ask for help. And in the past, I've absolutely minimized my needs. And I, I will also admit to having, you know, looked down upon other people's needs or sort of, you know, judged other people's high, what I would consider a more higher needs situations, you know, and sort of tried to minimize my needs to to fit in, to, you know, make other people more comfortable to, um, I guess, in my mind, I was giving myself more chances of, you know, connecting with people if I was less complicated. And in the end, I was really not doing anyone any favors um, because they knew in a situation where nobody's needs are being met and everyone's unhappy. And yeah. And you're um, not getting known as who you are. Right. So of course there's going to be limitations on how much intimacy there can be. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think in my, my previous, one of my previous relationships, you know, it led to when I moved in with that partner, even though there was, there was a lot of understood access needs. There were just a lot of things that we hadn't considered or talked about things that I hadn't realized I had been minimizing enough that when they came up, we're drastically cutting into time and expectations of independence and support needs in a shared environment. Uh, I also think that if you're not if you're not in polyamory when you or ethical non-monogamy in general, if you are not going to be clear 
and direct with your partner about your needs, you are also not giving your metamor the chance to voice their their needs, concerns about whatever they're comfortable with, right? And I I would hate to know that I've roped a metamor into a situation that they don't want to be in because my partner has agreed to you know, a certain amount of time. And I've like got in the back of my mind, well, okay, you know, in six months, I'm going to let him know that he needs to be here, you know, another an extra two hours a week to help me with these things I've been putting off, right? I could absolutely see that being super problematic to affect somebody else's time with their partner, because I haven't adequately communicated my needs and what I'm going to need out of, out of a time commitment, right? That makes sense. And, you know, everyone gets to consent, when there's actual meaningful communication and needs are clear, like you can actually say yes then and have your yes be meaningful. Right. That's what it comes down to is enthusiastic consent versus reluctant consent. I think a lot of people, I think we can relate to that experience of, of experiencing someone's reluctant. Yes. Mm -hmm. Feeling that reluctant. Yes. And how yucky that feels. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're like, you know, I I never meant for that to be the, the intention. And so having those really clear, clear expectations, uh, those clear communications to begin with, I think ends up saving you a lot of time and, and heartbreak ultimately. Absolutely. And you can also be clear about what elements might be negotiable. You know, Mm -hmm. like I usually do this on Tuesday, but like it doesn't have to be on Tuesday, you know, whatever. You know, I I I need this two hours to take place over the following couple of days, but it doesn't necessarily have, you know, like you can figure out which pieces you and your partner and meta can sort out to make sure that everybody's needs are getting met versus things that are like non-negotiable, like I need this at this time. And, you know, if, if we can't make that work, I need to find some other way to get that need filled. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's also, I think that is the beauty too of polyamory and different relationship structures is that as, as much as it's a a one-on-one thing, sometimes an access need, a relationship structure could mean all the difference for someone having their, their care needs met. And just looking at talking about having different relationship structures so that, you know, nobody is in, in one particular situation of feeling like they have too many, too many uh, expectations being placed on them, too many responsibilities, you know, it makes a world of difference. Yeah. Uh, Especially as somebody who now identifies as a solo polyamorous, where I um, recognize uh, one partner as an anchor partner, you know, we've kind of talked about having more integrated schedules, more integrated, um, you know, support systems and not expecting one partner or the other to pick up, you know, 90% of the responsibility for access and care needs um, is important to me, making sure that everyone kind of feels like it doesn't have to be evenly distributed. Cause like what, what my, you know, full load of, of responsibilities looks like could be a, a different you know, size load of what somebody else's full responsibility load looks like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially when it comes to dating people with uh, kids or full-time careers or, you know, pets, you know, things like that. I think being able to talk about time commitments in different relationship structures um, so that even if that is not your, I guess I would say go-to relationship structure, being, being able to, to talk about having adjustments so that um, everyone feels adequately supported um, and like they have adequate space from caregiver roles. It's really important. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Do you have any advice for folks who are either starting relationships or or interested in folks? I mean, I guess this entire episode has been a lot of advice, but <laughs> do you have any uh, lasting advice you would like to give folks who are interested in like interable dating or relationships? Stay curious, stay curious and stay open-minded. Everyone has something unique to offer. And I think that we have a lot more expectations and stereotypes ingrained into us than we realize. I know this as somebody who has been disabled from day one and is still learning about how other people navigate the world and how other people navigate relationships and intimacy, staying curious and being willing to, um, being able to to uh, ask questions and being willing to learn more than you want to talk and assume and observe is is really important. I think that 
I think that people have a lot to learn from dating people who move through the world differently from them, plain and simple. I think that's one of the most beautiful things about polyamory is that you get the option instead of, say, you know, meeting someone in high school and then marrying them. And that's the only person that you ever have interactions with romantically Mm -hmm. or physically or whatever for your whole life. Like polyamory opens this all of these doors for opportunity to date potentially hundreds of different people with different experiences and lives. And and yeah, and it's just so awesome. Like that we get that. Mm -hmm. I always appreciate a chance to see the world a little bit differently. I have also, I have really appreciated the feedback that I've gotten from partners who feel really comfortable talking to me about their experience dating me. I love getting feedback about, oh, these are things that I never considered, you know, Mm -hmm. going to house parties, going to, you know, raids or clubs a lot, you know, thinking about access needs, thinking about kink and disability and how those things um, play out, especially how all of that is portrayed, I think, and of course, in, in, in mainstream porn is, is a whole thing. And, and so once you start meeting people and, and experiencing this, um, you know, in the, the real world, it kind of like opens up, opens up a whole world of possibilities. And so to hear, you know, feedback on, oh, I, I hadn't considered that or thought about that until we started dating. It's really, it's been exciting for me. And so I think also being comfortable giving feedback observations. You know, I wouldn't want somebody asking me like, what's wrong with you? Why, why can't you get into this bathroom? Right. Um, But saying, Hey, you know, I observed that when we go places like you tend to, you know, not drink as much and, you know, be concerned about how, how long we're spending out. And I ask why that is, is that because, you know, your chair doesn't fit in the restroom, like approaching things from just like a more curious perspective instead of a, I think people people see disability and they immediately want to equate it with conflict or like problematic. And it's more often than not, it's not the disability, it's the access need that's the barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so that is that's the 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 other piece of advice is that it is it is less often the disability that is the barrier and more often the environment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's not the problem that you're in a wheelchair. It's the problem that there's no fuck. There's stairs everywhere in every fucking building there's in this town. Like, stairs, why? and we live in Milwaukee, where it snowed, you know, a, almost a foot the other day, and then I didn't, couldn't get to my car for two days. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I remember because I think you were on the news actually. Didn't you have like a small news bit about how horrible Milwaukee yeah, sidewalks are? A couple years ago, they came yeah. out and interviewed me while I was like basically rolling through a snowbank uh, to prove how how bad it is yeah because they shovel their snow into the curb cuts and then Mm -hmm. people in chairs can't cross the street shovel your curb cuts people Uh, seriously wheelchairs need them Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah and that that like stuck with me and we always make a really um conservative effort in front of the tool shed because the tool shed of of, like of all of the buildings in milwaukee which i feel like every single one has like at least three steps to get into um is one of the only wheelchair accessible like we don't have any steps to get in the buildings Uh, one of the only wheelchair accessible buildings that i know of in milwaukee and i'm like how is this like the sex toy shop like that's that's the one that gives a shit like (laughs) really like damn but it's pretty awesome and we always like we have a you know a sloped driveway in front of the building mm-hmm. and it's it's my i feel like it's the owner's like one um you know hill he will die on that that little driveway will always be clear god damn it and i'm like okay yeah great good i'm happy yes. <laughs> this is great we appreciate it yes. yeah yeah i i will never understand uh why the the americans with disabilities act exists in the form that it exists um, with the grandfathering systems and how any building built prior to 1993 does not have to meet current ADA standards blows my mind. And yet it exists. I think the answer you know? is that probably the realtors associations uh, lobbied hard to not have to have older buildings comply. I mean, yep. if, how does it look that way? It, the answer is lobbyists. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I'll just never, just never understood why those lobbyists win over people actually needing to, to get places. And there's a, <laughs> that's a whole other episode on <laughs> yeah. how the economy would be different if people with disabilities actually had access to, to jobs and school and public places. But yeah, I, 
I think overall lack of public access is is all the more reason to um, highlight that, you know, communication with people about access needs is important and sort of shifting our expectations about what it looks like to c- connect with people with disabilities is, is really important. I would like to think that being in year two now, well, almost year three of of pandemic um, has shifted people's ideas of access and, you know, safety and health than consent around, you know, putting people in, in comfortable situations versus putting people in harm's way. But, you know, we, we have a long way That's to go. That's a very optimistic viewpoint. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, the, I, I the pandemic that. didn't do shit for some people. It didn't make them yeah. think about anything, mm-hmm. but you know, right. like, <laughs> yeah, you hopefully. Think, you would think it did, but uh, yeah, it's unfortunate that's not the not the reality of it. But yeah, different people have different access needs. And even if we can't make the world more accessible, we can make relationships accessible. Um, and we can be open to understanding with and understanding and interacting with people who experience life differently. Absolutely. Do you have any like a website or anything to promote when it comes to your like life coaching and helping and yeah um i, I have a website I'm, I'm working on it it's um i'm i'm switching to a new platform um but sterlingavery.com um i use two different names <laughs> separation of church and state uh after <laughs> after uh transitioning um, but so I, I use my formal legal name, Sterling, um, for life coaching and sterlingavery.com has just about all of the services that I offer. Um, I do tarot readings as well. Um, I do uh, job interview prep. I do um, business consultation um, inquiry. So if somebody has um, an inquiry. A question about making their venue or event more accessible. They may may ask me if people have questions about, you know, how to just be more inclusive when it comes to, um, you know, teaching or being another mentor in the community. I do that as well. Um, or if there's anybody who's just new to polyamory and, you know, has questions about, okay, how do I do this? And how do I maybe do this as somebody with a disability or someone who is neurodivergent, maybe, you know, I, I love to give advice there and kind of do problem solving. Um, I'm kind of, I would like to think I'm, I'm sort of that local, cool, older sibling who's available uh, for, for support. Nice. Yeah, I think this is a really great conversation. And actually, um, because I do everything last minute, this will actually be posted tonight. So I'm going to edit it right now. Cool. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This really was exciting. It was. Thank you so much for reaching out and for you know offering yourself as a resource and a person to be interviewed. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, thank my friend Brianna for texting me after this asshole left her in bed from New York. She was she lives in New York and she was like this bastard. And I was like, oh. I have shit to say about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Well, thank you very much and have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you. You all as well. See ya. Bye. Bye. And that is it from us at Polyamory Uncensored. We have been Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams. We'd like to thank podcast husband Rob for being our sound engineer. And thank you, Lindsay, for editing this podcast so that we sound smart. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Polyamory Uncensored. Contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com if you have a listener question or a comment. And if you'd like to support us at all, you can send us a monthly contribution at anchor.fm slash polyamoryuncensored and simply click on the support this podcast button. If you'd like to support the podcast with a one-time contribution, we've set up a PayPal link to make it super easy. Thank you for your support in any amount at paypal.me slash polyamoryuncensored. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and remember, we love you. Bye.